hey there, this is Danny Sunshine Bauer from Better Leaders, Better Schools, and the School Leadership Series, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com and get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Lou Alpert is the author of Surrender, A Love Letter to My Daughter, published in 2019. Her daughter is a heroin addict, and the book tells Lou's story of trying to help her daughter and eventually realizing that she couldn't solve her child's addiction. Powerful episode. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Crystal Champ's infamous story is one of hope and redemption. In 2017, Crystal made headlines as she first surrendered her baby to a police officer as a homeless heroin addict, then radically changed her life by committing to sobriety. CNN broke the story on December 1st, 2017, and it went viral, while the police officer was honored in the State of the Union address. Her mother, however, has had a quieter but equally harrowing journey as she watched her daughter fall victim to opioid addiction. Her memoir, Surrender, published in 2019, tracks her response to her daughter's rampant drug abuse, delinquency, and rejection of her family. It is a testament to lose faith in the faith of in the face of a disease that continues to ravage the lives of millions of Americans while serving as a guide for addicts' loved ones who want to protect and support them without pushing them away. Lou Alpert is a native Texan who graduated from Southern Methodist University with a Bachelor of Fine Arts. Over the last 45 years, she has been a co-owner of a women's art gallery, founder of a children's book publishing house, founder of the Lakewood Service League, and a residential realtor. First and foremost, she is a mom and advocate of children. Lou is a mother of six children, a stepdaughter, and Crystal, who came to live with her at age 16. Lou, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Thanks for having me, Steve. Well, I greatly appreciate you you being here, and uh, your book is very powerful, and I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk. So let's start by uh, going here. Your book, Surrender, A Love Letter to My Daughter, um, tell us why you shared your story. I think I originally wrote the story simply to get myself through through the trauma and everything that had occurred. I think I had lived in isolation for five years and really not shared the story with even my closest friends and just had kept silent. And when it broke on CNN, I lost my anonymity. And so I needed to work through my own feelings. So I wrote it. I wrote it very quickly. I wrote it in probably a month, writing eight, 10 hours a day. And once I finished it, I sent it to Crystal and she was the one who pushed me as much as anyone and said, you need to share this story because you need to give voice to parents and what parents are going through. That's excellent. I'm glad that she pushed you. And just with that, who would you want, who do you think should be your audience? Who do you think should really, you definitely want to read Surrender? Well, definitely people who are, parents or loved ones of addicts. I think it's really important that we bring the story into the limelight, that we stop making heroin and meth sort of hidden subjects that we don't talk about. 
there's not a lot of access for parents and especially when you go to the point of letting your daughter live on the street, people look at you like you're crazy and you don't talk about it and it needs to be talked about because in the end parents just suppress their feelings and aren't sharing and they're going crazy in their own way. And I also think it's honestly for any parent because we all are codependent on our children. And as hard as we try, we set expectations for our children that often aren't realistic. It's, I think you're right on the the spot there with both types of audiences um, reading it because as a parent of, of two boys who are in her college age or um, once completed college in the work world, it's, you know, it's one of those things that you think about and, you know, you worry about uh, losing contact or, you know, or finding out that, uh, you know, just the different, uh, um, all this tough stuff that you had to deal with. I don't know how else to say it. And uh, it's a scary thought there. And we're going to get into some of that, I'm sure. We've got, uh, you know, at the beginning of the book, you share the serenity prayer. Can you tell us what the significance it is that it plays in your life in the book? Well, I grew up in addiction. I mean, my dad was an alcoholic. My sister was a drug addict who died when we were in our early 20s. And the serenity prayer is supposed to be telling you that you have no control. And so you need to only control what you can, which is simply yourself. It's a lot easier read and said than lived. We, um, I don't think until I really got into this place with Crystal that I had truly surrendered to the fact that I had no control. I think I still was trying to fix, still trying to control situations. But ultimately, the truth of the serenity prayer is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can and let go of the things I can't. That's awesome, because that, that does seem to become a big message in the in your book, especially as you're, um, we're going to talk about this in just a second, the idea that you you think you can try and solve some things and that uh, turns out not to be the case. <laughs> um, somebody else has to become a little more involved in that. The, uh, uh, the forward's written by Scotty Collins and his opening says, welcome to addiction. Some choose to keep this a secret within a family. Some choose to judge those afflicted by it. Some choose to turn a blind eye. Some, however, choose to fight it. Who's Scotty Collins? And can you talk with us about his words? Yeah, Scotty is the person who, when the CNN story broke, he saw Crystal on TV shooting up in the alley with the policeman pregnant and basically said to me, I decided I saw a little light left in her and thought I can save this person. And he flew to Albuquerque and did the intervention. He brought a female so she would have somebody to relate to. And he was the one who did the intervention and arranged for her to go into this rehab at Mending Fences in Florida and arranged for it to be paid for because it wasn't something, it wasn't the kind of rehab I financially could pay for, you know, and so he has continued to be her support. She didn't go the first time, so it took two times to get her on the plane to go, gotcha. but he stuck it out. That, that's awesome that he had that persistence. And I know that's, Something that I think that uh, even just, you know, recognizing that he might be able to do something, I guess, is powerful there, too, isn't it? He's a recovered addict and really has devoted his life to trying to help other people get across this road. Excellent. The, uh, you know, on the first page of your memoir, you comment, For the first time since August 2015, other than mugshots, I saw my daughter. 
Could you share what happened? Yeah, Crystal got originally got clean. Um, in 2013, I drove out to Albuquerque with my son, actually Santa Fe at that time, because her boyfriend had told me she was going to die if I didn't get out there and save her. And she kept telling me she was fine. And that was before I really knew how totally normal a high opioid addict can sound. It's, they sound bad when they're coming off the drugs. They sound pretty good when they're on them. And I finally just decided I had to drive out there, look her in the face and see what, see what the problem was. And my son and I drove out there and it was a harrowing experience. I, you know, I found her on the floor of a house, semi-unconscious with belts hanging around and needles on the floor. And she was, I shook her and she opened her eyes and said, I knew you'd come. And I looked at her arms and there were track marks. And I looked, when we got in the light, she had track marks. She was shooting up in her neck and her fingers and between her toes, any vein that was there. And so we got her into rehab in 2013 and she stayed clean for about, well, she got pregnant. She decided the way to stay clean was to get pregnant. And so she had a, she had a previous child and she, um, she went off the rails. We were on a family vacation at the beach and we were all there having a great weekend and all the kids were there. I have eight kids and five grandkids and multiple spouses. And I kissed her goodbye at the door and hugged her like I always did and said, call me when you get back to Santa Fe. And that was the last time I saw her. Wow. The, uh, and so then, so then the next time is going to be that story that's, that, that appears on the, on uh, CNN, right? Right. And then we have been in contact. We have been texting off and on as the book shows. We text regularly. I mailed her phones. She, she spun out and went and ultimately ended up living on the streets. And, um, but we stayed in contact. We kept, you know, we always emailed, I mean, not emailed, texted. Right. I got calls from jail, but I hadn't seen her. I still have not seen her. Well, the, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you talk about and, and you mention is this, um, you say, you, you share that you were Crystal's third mother. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, Crystal was put up for adoption as an infant. She was born in Canada and her father, and they lived in a very small town and her father was the minister and the, this baby, they took in this baby. They ultimately, I think when Crystal was around 14, moved to Texas and put her in a large public high school. And anyone who works with kids knows that's a hard spot to try to enter her school. And it was a very large school. She'd never been in any situation like that. And by high school, most of the kids have their groups. And she was picked up by the group that was in trouble. And so she started being pretty wild. She wasn't, she wasn't a compliant teen, as I like to say. She was sneaking out and taking the car and probably doing lots of nonsense she shouldn't have been doing. And ultimately, I, she... I had one of those houses. I had six kids of my own. I had two other kids other than Crystal who had lived with me for three years and transitioned back to families. 
we were just sort of that house where kids ended up and Crystal ended up at my house. And I, I, she ended up staying at one point, her parents wanted her back. I had no legal right to keep her. And so they took her back and had her, they were very religious and sort of an odd way to me. And we're forcing a lot of, of regulations that were probably beyond what most teens would have been willing to do. And they had a reading and copying Bible verses. And ultimately they called me and met me at a restaurant in the neighborhood and handed me crystal and two boxes and signed over papers. So I could be in charge of her and left. And we didn't see them for six months. They've bounced in and out of her life over the years, but she's been with me since she was, I met her at 15 and she turned 16 probably a month before she moved in permanently. Wow. So kind of briefly, it's also, could you talk just a little bit about the impact? Cause you, you just kind of take her in, right? There's, I mean, there's not like a family powwow to say, Hey, by the way, um, we're going to have a new daughter. <laughs> no, I did bless my children. Um, I did this to them regularly. Um, <laughs> my daughter came home from camp and had a sister and they shared a room. It was just sort of what I did uh, in my life. And my kids have been pretty good about it. I didn't know, you know, you don't, you never know what you're bringing in, but I was this very young mother who believed I could save the world. And so, you know, I figured, I figured I was a better place they were looking at sending her to like a group home for difficult children. And I thought I was a better place than that. The, uh, you know, one of the things, and you just mentioned it just a second ago that I want to make sure that we kind of talk about is uh, you mentioned in the book that you thought you could fix anything. And matter of fact, you say, you, you finish that thought by saying, including a scared or, and troubled teen. Um, can you share a little bit about what you mean? Kind of expound upon that idea of you thought you could fix anything. <laughs> Um, I think coming from a family full of addiction, you build this wall and you start believing you're so good at handling what you're living through as a kid. And you grow up being sort of the person in the family that fixes things and controls things. And I was very controlling in my youth. And as I grew up and I had my own children, I think I did a, a little bit better job of letting go Although I think all of my children are benefiting from me writing this book because now I've sort of gotten it through my head. I really am not the fixer, you know, I'm not the one who's going to fix everything. And so I'm letting them go. But I think it's a common trait in parents that we think we can somehow control our children and fix their problems. I think it's becoming a bigger issue now when I, um, I like to say when I was growing up, we, we didn't have cell phones. So if I had to call my parents from college, I had to use a payphone and hope somebody on the other end answered. My kids have always been able to have immediate access to me. So, you know, if they had a problem, if they were in Denver college and they lost their keys, they called me and I would be like, I'm in Dallas, you're in Denver. <laughs> I think that cell phones have made parents excellent problem solvers. And made children terrible problem solvers. That's a good point. That's a good point. That's you know, it's funny. I have, uh, I, I know the feeling because I've had this discussion with uh, uh, with uh, friends and family where, you know, when I'm 
once I went away from school to college and I went away a long way away, um, 17 hours away, there's, there was no way of knowing unless I contacted them through the, through the, uh, the payphone that was on the corner <laughs> of <Yes>. the building <laughs> where, uh, you know, and had to wait in line to do it, which meant that it limited my calls because you had to wait in line with other kids and stuff like this. And so, you know, either you went out to found another phone or uh, I'll call later and later turned into days. It, you know, it's and whereas today it's just immediate. You know, just like you said. Yes, uh, immediate access. The uh, so it does it does have that type of impact. You know, and it's uh, you know in some ways positive, which means you could do the texting like you're talking about. We'll get into in just a minute, but but uh, you know, possibly doesn't make them into good problem solvers as they know they can reach out and say, <laughs> "I have contact with you now." Here we go. Watch. <laughs> so yes. solve my problem. Yes. <laughs> nice. The, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you do talk, you, it, your book has in it, you share emails, letters, and text messages. And, and we start everywhere from the beginning with a letter that went to the school that uh, um, Crystal ends up enrolling in um, to just the, the, the emails and texts between the two of you. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you would hope the, the impact of these are on the reader? I mean, basically why you included them. Well, I think the text messages, first of all, when I started writing the book, I didn't know I had all these text messages. It's sort of amazing because every time I bought Crystal a new phone, I would erase Crystal 1 and replace it with Crystal 2 and so on. We're on Crystal 10 now. We're hoping this is going to be the final one. But I didn't realize that when you deleted the number that it didn't delete the text messages. So when I started writing the book, it was important to me to have a factual and clear sort of a picture. I wanted to have a, an honest history. And so I did go back and look at, you know, medical records and jail records. And when I went into my phone, I realized I had two and a half years of text messages. And so that seemed to be a good framework to build a story around. And it was interesting at one point when Crystal first got clean, she would say to me, I just don't remember. And I said to her, I remember it all. I have it time stamped and dated. I remember everything. And, and I think in the end, when she read the book, it really helped her because she's writing her own book, but it helped her put it. She didn't remember. And so I think that it helped her, but it also serves to show you what it's like to have a heroin addict communicate with you. You know, there's messages that are just HH because that's all, you know, I would just wake up to these messages that were letters or nonsense. That was the best she could do when she was wandering streets in the middle of the night. There's also times that she's really wandering the streets and sad and missing us and missing her child. And then there's a whole lot of times she wants me to pay for something, a phone, a hotel room, <laughs> right. something. Yeah, those the, those even those text messages are very powerful. I mean, they do send the message, and like you said, you didn't have to try and remember the dates and times. There they were, date and time stamped, and uh, and so then it just would bring back the the thoughts about those discussions. And they are they really do a good job of bringing the reader into your world and that of Crystal's. Yeah, it was sort of a miracle. I never got a new phone, and they were all there. <laughs> there they were. That is, that is interesting. So, you, you know, you talked about replacing the phones. Is that because she was losing them or because uh, she's selling them? I mean, everything. You know, you would send, I would send her a phone and it would get stolen. Um, it would get lost. 
or, you know, she'd sell it. You know, it's, it's, and sometimes I send her a phone and it was being used by half a dozen people. So if I called or texted, I would get responses from people I didn't know because she was sharing it with a group. Phones are a big commodity when you're on the streets. And I sent really cheap phones. (laughs) Because I knew they wouldn't last. All right, smart. And I can only imagine about the number of people who are using them and thinking, <laughs> you know, just suddenly. You get... Yes. The, uh, it... In the text messages, there's a funny text where she tells me how she really needs a smartphone. That, you know, that this flip phone she's using is really holding her back. And <laughs> I like to say I I didn't even respond to that text. I realized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. We're good. <laughs> so um, the, uh, and it, I can just, you know, some of the messages that you talk about that are, are like getting HH or something like this. And you're like, what in the world? And I mean, it, without having any explanation, I can't even imagine what the impact on you would be um, to say, here's this text. And I don't know what this is. Yeah, it was hard. When Crystal was on the streets, it was nonstop worrying, not sleeping. And that's when you, I really started isolating, I think, more and more, which is what parents don't need to be doing. Because when you do that, you do. You go to the dark places. You don't hear from her for a couple of weeks. She was pretty good about at least sending me something occasionally. So I knew she was alive. But, you know, those long periods. You know, I called the morgue. I mean, as a parent, to come to a place that you're calling the morgue to see if your if your child's there, giving a description. You know, it's those are low points. Most definitely, the most definitely. The uh, you know, at, at the end of surrender, you have an epilogue by Crystal. Something that stands out is this comment. This and so, just remind listeners, this is Crystal talking. She says, I do, however, yearn to warn my loved ones of the overwhelming course of destruction that would inevitably impact their lives in ways not yet imagined and how action could be taken to prevent this. What are your thoughts about her words, especially as an epilogue um, for your book? You know, I, um, Crystal was very, was a very newly recovered addict when she wrote this and she and I talked a lot. Ideally, I would love for us to find a way to get kids before they put the needle in their arm. It would be much easier. I had no idea. I mean, that Crystal, you know, you go back and you say, should I I have seen signs? Should I have known something? I knew she was drinking. I knew she was probably playing around with a few drugs here and there. I have eight kids. I'm not naive to that world. But I didn't think she was doing anything that was over what my other children were doing. And the heroin happened very quickly. And it happened in a way that I think most of these kids, a lot of them are getting into it. They had a friend who was dying and they were hanging out with him and sharing his, his pills. And Crystal has an addictive personality. And she, she took to it, she went very quickly from a pill to a needle. And, and she never had any fear of needles and, and, and often told me over those years that she, heroin addict was the best thing she'd ever been. She carried Narcon. She popped people back when they overdosed. She was a responsible addict. And 
I like to say when CNN found her, she looked infinitely better than when I found her the first time because she was a better addict. She'd been doing drugs for a longer time. She knew what she needed and how to, how to manage it better, which sounds awful, but it was sort of like it was, she was living this life now. She'd chosen this life. That's, you know, and I just, what you describe and what uh, she's gone through and what you've experienced over these years, the, uh, I just cannot imagine the, um, the, the impact on you and family members of, you know, kind of a, a helpless, not kind of a helplessness, um, as well as there's gotta be some way of making this better. I mean, cause I, I hear you describe that she's a, she's a good addict, but it's like, we, we prefer not to be here. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone tells you when they're 15 and you say, what are you going to be when you grow up? Drug addict is on the list. You know, she, she was so deep into it and I offered, we offered her rehab constantly and she had no interest. And she would say to me, mom, I just don't see how, I just don't see how. And and the flip side of it is she had chosen a life with no responsibility. You know, she wasn't paying bills. She wasn't taking care of anything. She literally got up in the mornings and stood on a corner and waved a flag to beg for enough money to get high and eat for that day. And there's a certain kind of freedom in living that kind of life. When you, now that she's clean, she's having to deal with what we all deal with, getting a job and working and, you know, cleaning up debt from the past and all those things that when she was high were easy to ignore. That's just uh, so, uh, I mean, it, it makes me very speechless. I mean, reading your book, because you get the same feelings, the emotional feelings that I'm and what I'm hearing you talk about and so forth, it comes out loud and clear in reading your book. I mean, it's very powerful. And because those types of questions come up because you think about, uh, well, how, where is she getting the money and what's she doing? And like you said, it's a life of no attachment and, and you just figure out how to get the money and you live that way. No responsibility. Yeah. yeah it's changed my viewpoint, oddly enough, on homeless people. Because again, Crystal didn't want to be on the streets. She just, she fell into this addiction and it's, it's such a powerful drug. And there's a, there's a great poem that I found online called Miss Heroin. And, and it ends with, I will stay with you till death do us part. And it's, that's heroin. I mean, it's a drug that, that takes you and, Crystal just couldn't imagine living in a world without heroin. Nothing was that was more important than that. And so, you know, I think the media attention and the intervention and the publicity pushed her to a place that she decided she could give give it a chance. The uh, and so now she has been uh, how. We're at, uh, we're in 2019. So she's been mm -hmm. clean for about how long? About a year and a half, just over a year and a half. Well, 
congrats on that and congrats to her. Yeah, not that, don't, don't congrat me, congrat her. She did the work. Um, you know, in the end, I, I think this is the thing about the fixing. And, you know, I had taken Crystal in when she was 16 and people would come up to me and say, oh, she must be so grateful you took her in. You know, she must be so grateful. And I'd say, no, she's just as obnoxious and selfish as the rest of my children, which means I must be doing something right. And, you know, but I had been sort of that angel, that person who stepped into her life and gave her something better, straightened her teeth, you know, gave her braces, you know, put her through college and all of those types of things. And in the end with this, you know, she was saved by CNN, a policeman, you know, and, and, a and a rehab that I never in a million years could have paid for really nice rehab. And so I like to say in about two seconds, I lost my angel status. My wings were cut. I fell off my cloud and this policeman was now the savior. And that was hard. That was hard on me. It was hard on my ego. And it, and part of writing this book was that I had to find out why, when she got clean, I got so angry, you know, because I was angry and things came out of my mouth that would never have come out of my mouth. And I needed to find out what was going on with me. I needed to, I needed to get curious about what was going on with me. And so that was part of writing the book was to write through the feelings to get to the point of truly being grateful that, you know, I had prayed and prayed and prayed that Crystal would get clean and God got her clean. He just didn't do it the way I thought it should be done. You know, he did it with a news story and a policeman, which I never could have thought up or put into effect. And so I finally got to a place of gratitude because I know where Crystal's daughter is. I know she's safe. I know she's in a good family. I got a Christmas card this year. And so, you know, it's, I have, I had to get myself to a place of being grateful and letting go of, of any of my ego nonsense, you know, and that's all that we hear of her. And I think that's a hard thing for any of us, you know, when we get our feelings upset, it's, it's, it's our ego talking. And I had to sort of get myself straight on that. And, you know, I think it confuses people that, Crystal's been clean a year and a half and we haven't seen each other. But we talk. She's writing her own book. And her book is very different. I can't imagine what she went through living on the streets for those that period of time. You know, just the, the, the sheer not, not bathing for, you know, not having food, not having a place to sleep. She walked away from all, all that. You know, she had it. But she... she there had to be major trauma when she was living on the streets. And so we talk, but we're both still healing. And when we have a relationship again, which I believe we will, and we sort of, we do have a relationship. We love each other. You know, that was never a question. Crystal knows I love her. She knew every day she was on the streets, I loved her. And I've always known she loves me. But we're new people now. We've both been through a lot of trauma and a lot of hurt. And so we both need time to heal 
and then we will have, I like to say my expectations for Crystal's life no longer exist in the way I once had them. But now I'm hoping that she will live beyond any expectations I could have ever conceived, that she'll help other people, save other people. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. I, I, you know, one of the things I want to make sure that we talk about is that uh, it, in your final chat, in your final chapter of the book, you note, "I have no cures or words of wisdom to offer the multitude of struggling addicts, and I have no magic answers to the opioid crisis." And you then share some lessons learned, and here are the first three because you have several in there, but the first three are they're all powerful, but the first three hit you right in the face. And one of them is parents are enablers. The second one is we can't fix our addicts. And three is addicts break the hearts of the parents and those who love them. And I, I don't think the listener could not, could not go away without hearing that as you were talking in this here just yeah, a second ago. It does break their heart. And I think that we have, but as much as it breaks your heart, you also as the parent. I didn't put the needle in Crystal's arm. I, you know, that was her choice. And I was never going to be the one to take the needle out of her arm. It was always going to be Crystal who had to decide when she was going to take the needle out and move on with her life in a different way. And we were much more prepared after two years on the streets for Crystal to die than we were for her to live. So when she got clean, it was, we probably should have all been immersing ourselves in Al-Anon for a couple of years, but we were, we were sort of preparing ourselves for her to die. And, and that's a weird place to be. But she, you know, now that she's clean, we have to re, we have to find a whole new realm to live together. It's just, uh, I, I cannot imagine this, all the different emotions that go with all of that, just the ro a roller coaster ride that it is. That, uh, and, and even yeah. now, <laughs> because there's got to be some expectation, or are we going to be back to where we were again at some point? <clears throat> yes. And, and interesting, you know, I have certain children who still communicate with her who are back communicating. Really, one daughter. I have many of my other children who it will take a long time, if ever, because they watched the pain I went through. And it's not that they're unforgiving of her. They're, uncom they're unforgiving of what she put me through. And, and they, they, were, they had a front row seat to the tears. And it's hard for them to move beyond that. Harder than it is for me. <laughs> that's a, that's a but quite understandable um, as they, their reaction to uh, seeing you go through what you did. The, uh, we're coming to a close. And before we finish, if someone would like to connect with you or find a copy of your book, where would you send them? Well, Amazon and Barnes and Noble have the books and I have a website, um, lualpertbooks.com that has where people can reach out to me that has some blog posts on how parents can deal with addiction and move forward. And I think that 
that's the whole thing is reaching out to each other, continuing to find a way as parents to reach out and connect with each other. I've tried to do some blog posts that, that take it further. I've done a few on self-care for parents, how to take care of yourself through the chaos that you're going through. I think it's super important that you stay, that parents stay. I, my self-care became exercise. Like I became this crazy exercise person. So I like to say, I thank Crystal for being in the best shape of my life. But, you know, it's, we, we have to find ways to cope and, and, and take care of ourselves in the midst of what's happening, whether it's Crystal doing heroin or your other child, any other child having problems. As parents, at some point, we have to put some level of detachment to take care of ourselves and not get so independent and wrapped up in their problems. I got you. The, uh, and so one of the things I want to make sure the audience remembers is that I have show notes. And so I will have uh, links to uh, where you can get the book as well as to uh, loualpert.com um, so that you can connect and go to the website and uh, reach out to Lou. Okay. Well, as we finish now, I've got two last questions and one of them goes like this. If you had the chance to talk with an audience of parents who are dealing with an addict in their family, what is one piece of advice you would want to give them? I think, too, the one that I sort of talked of, and that is don't isolate. Go find a group, whether it be parents, a group of people you can talk to, a church, someplace you can share what you're going through. It's, it's not possible to take this kind of ride alone. Um, and the other is self-care. Sleep. Find a way to sleep. Find a way to exercise. Find a way to meditate or find some way of balancing yourself because this isn't a short ride you know it's a long road and it's it's not only a long road it's a not never ending road because people stay clean for years and relapse and so once an addict they have to work their program and you as a supporter of them have to work your program and keep yourself even, or you're not of use to them. If, if you fall into the place, too many parents fall into the place of poor me, poor me, my daughter's an addict, poor me. You can't play the victim to your addict. If you do, you're not, you're not helping your addict. You know, you have to take care of yourself. Thank you so much for uh, providing that advice. The, you know, because like you said, we all, you know, you want to not have to even think about something like this, but if found there, you're going to need to, to have some guidance, I would think. And I would hope that eventually we would be able to be talking to kids younger about the experiences, about where this drug will take you to try to get them to stop before. Most definitely, most definitely trying to figure out how to get them to, you know, it's uh I think a lot of times adults mean well with how they talk with kids about things like this, but too often times it's not a sense of reality of how they become addicted or how they, be, you know, where it comes from and stuff like this. And I, I think about that from thinking about classes that I sat through in the, in my days in school and, uh, 
you know, as my kids would want to remind me, yes, that was a long time ago, but we did have dirt and we did have electricity then. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's they, they made it seem like it was this scary villain on the corner that uh, that was the person who, you know, that's how you got got it. And that's where you, you know, just so avoid the scary person, the evil monster on the corner. And it's not quite like that. So delivering that message, I think, is uh, I agree with you. You got to find a way. I think you have to find a way to stop them from starting it and to let them see where that road goes. So the road that, so if they see where that road can lead, it's scary enough that they don't want to start down it. Very strong and powerful advice and thoughts there. And I think that's just right on the money. Um, what I'd like to do is end with hopefully a little bit of a happier note. And, uh, and I'd like to ask you this. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? You know, it's funny because I live in the same neighborhood I grew up in and um, literally at the same grade school. Oh, wow. <laughs> so some of the teachers are still around. I have an art teacher named Miss Eldridge. And it's funny now because she's, she's much older. And I see her where I work out. And, you know, she's, she's pretty good, but she was just a wonderful teacher that encouraged creativity. And, and I think for me, being an artist, I've always been involved in the arts and the creative process in some way. I think that she gave that to her students, taught us to be creative. And, and I work at a school now part-time and that's what I try to do with my kids, you know, to just teach them to believe in themselves and, and be positive and see, see their own creations is wonderful. That's awesome. That's, that's so awesome. You know, it's, and it's neat that you live in the same, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine my life. It's crazy, is, right? That is, I, mean, that, that's, <laughs> that, I, I, I really, it's hard for me to imagine because I moved, my family moved all over the place. And so I have very limited connection and maybe in, once in a blue moon, I might run into somebody who knew me somewhere in life, but it, it's not that, that frequent. And it's just, uh, um, until I became an adult. And so that's such an interesting thing. And I can't, you know, I, where I work now, I run into people who are teachers in the same building where they went to school and, uh, yes, which is a cool thing too. I probably have 20, 30 friends since first grade that we still see each other, Neat, you know, and crazier, the guy who from CNN who wrote these stories lives two blocks away. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, it is a small world. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. Well, uh, Lou, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for talking with me today. S Surrender, A Love Letter to My Daughter is a powerful book. I thank you so much for sharing your experiences and reflections on what you learned along the way. And I wish you the best. Thank you very much for having me, Steve. Hey, have you got some thoughts, questions, or ideas? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me through my email at stephenmiletto at gmail.com. Stephen spelled with a V and Mileto is M-I-L-E-T-T-O. And that's at gmail.com. Or if you're in the United States or Canada, you can call my Google voice number at 478-353-5471. Love to hear from you. Thanks. Take care now. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> The opinions 
expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Thank you.